0: Hey everyone, and welcome to Lighter Impact, the podcast that explores the intersection of social impact, semantics, and spirituality. Whether you're an entrepreneur, activist, or simply someone looking to make a difference, this podcast will provide you with insights and tools needed to make an impact in the world and feel lighter doing it. So sit back, relax, and let's see where this journey takes us. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lighter Impact. Today, our guest is Danish Munir, a healthcare entrepreneur and founding partner of Grey Matter, a venture capital platform that supports bold founders in building the future of mental health and emotional well-being by giving them the tools, resources, networks, and capital they need to build better. Prior to Grey Matter, Danish founded Genoa Telepsychiatry, one of the first telepsychiatry companies in the country. After seeing the evolution of digital mental health as an entrepreneur, he decided to dedicate his next act in mental health to taking a systems level approach in improving the entrepreneurial journey for the next generation of founders. Dhanesh, thanks for joining us today. Welcome.
1: Thank you for having me. It's good to see you.
0: I'd like to kick, kick off the conversation by asking the question I'd like to ask, all of our guests which is how has your understanding of making an impact in the world changed over time
1: oh gosh that's a really good question um i think that growing up um in pakistan uh, in a muslim family uh, from a young age i think having an impact or or seeking purpose in life was always um something that was like essential right it was something that uh, my mother i think i got it from my mother um, was to sort of like question like you know what is our purpose in this world and and what role have we played and what do we leave behind and how have we made the life of others betters, better, better, um, and um, I think as a young person you kind of don't know what that means and you kind of don't know what that will look like, uh, and so when I came to college, um, I was I was lucky I was one of the first people in my family to go to college and to go abroad. Uh, it was about you know my initial versions of it were hey. Um, the US has this financial services industry, it has these capital markets, these capital markets when well, they're well-functioning, they can pull economies out of poverty. Um, and so maybe I should go learn about this and then try to take this back home. And that was sort of my version of like, you know, thinking about impact. Um, unfortunately, I got a little bit unlucky with timing and also learned that it was not an industry that I wanted to be in, but I found myself at Lehman summer of 08 uh, when the last financial crisis was happening. So uh very quickly uh you know left that industry and found that just you know as much as uh pakistan needs well-functioning capital markets being an investment banker was not going to be the path how you know and how i brought them back home um luckily had a you know engineering background as well so i went to microsoft and started you know uh i had always believed in the power of technology to create good Uh, i think uh, we, we grew up in simpler times when perhaps uh you know some of the more um, nuanced narratives and understanding that we have now of the dual edge role technology can play—it was like a little bit like sort of you know one-dimensional, right? You only viewed technology as a force for good. Um, and so I, I thought, okay, maybe that's the path. And so I went in uh, to Microsoft and worked in online safety. And over there, I was part of a team that was trying to protect users from all kinds of bad actors on the internet—things like phishing, malware, spam, pornography. You know, we were doing any kind of content filtering using intelligence. Uh, and and that's sort of where i cut my teeth uh, in my early career Um, but as much as like that was motivating in the abstract that you know we were kind of doing this greater good for the internet it was very hard to point to and see who you were actually helping um and you know in so many ways being at a large company i think a lot of people can relate to this i kind of felt like small cog in a big machine and so the definition of impact I found that it wasn't hitting it for me, even though we, even though we could see on a dashboard numbers that were astronomical in terms of how many bad things we we blocked or stopped. It was just wasn't moving the needle for me because the impact wasn't personal. Um, and it wasn't until I got into mental health uh, in 2011, uh, which you know was through a series of uh, accidents and 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 uh, luck that uh, that I really started sort of feeling like, okay, now I'm working on something that where the impact is something that I actually can You know see hear touch feel and care about because it was an it was something that my family had gone through as well and it was something personal to me
0: what did it take for you to leave your job at microsoft and launch this company in 2011 that was focused on mental health and what advice do you have for that younger version of yourself who was making this big life decision to leave microsoft
1: yeah uh you know it's so interesting um when you're in your 20s your sometimes your your risk tolerance is just so much higher right and and it's almost like it's like some combination of like rational and and emotional right like where like the rational part is like okay i have a lot of time and i can make big bets and if i make those big bets and they pay off in whatever direction they don't have to be quantitative bets but whatever you know if you're betting on launching yourself into a new industry or if you're launching yourself into building a new skill set or whatever it is those big bets can pay off in in a way Early in your life, that can be very rewarding for the rest of your life, um, and and so there's like a rational component to it. There's also like a little bit of this emotional or irrational component to it, where you're like not truly calculating the costs. You're 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 sort of you know you're overweighting the benefits and you're you know underweighting the costs because you you have a lot of you have the ability to have a lot of optimism, right? Which is a, a quality that, that young people have, which you know unfortunately diminishes with time, um, and age. And so I for me, even though now looking back, the costs of taking that bet and leaving Microsoft were so high. Uh, Microsoft had just applied. I, I was an immigrant, right? So to, to, to establish the baseline, I was here on a visa, which tied me to a large company, which meant that if I lost my job or didn't have someone sponsoring me, I would have 90 days to find someone else to sponsor me, or I would have to leave the country. And this is in the shadow of a, you know, the largest financial crisis we had um, in our lifetimes, right? Uh, and so. Um, leaving microsoft for me meant walking away from the green card which they had just applied for for me for my permanent residency and having to go to this startup which if it worked at best would delay my process by many many years in the worst case scenario if it didn't work it could leave me having to leave the country uh at the end of that summer when we went to that accelerator so it was definitely uh what some would characterize potentially even a reckless decision but in the moment it felt so obvious that it was the right thing to do because it was about following my heart, and it was about following the dream, and it was about, you know um, being able to be true to myself and and what I believed in uh, and, and betting on myself, right? And I think that's the advice I would give young people is that you know you, you have to have like the right level of preparedness, you have to have invest in skills and do the work, but you also have to be willing to take the leap when the moment arises. Um, you can't do it for everything. But you have to know what the right moments are to take that leap, and to make that bet, and to go chase that thing that you you dream dream about. Because um, as you get older and older, it gets it just gets harder.
0: Yeah, I can definitely agree that it gets harder as you get older. And there's something special about that recklessness of being in your 20s and just being like, no, this this is where I got to go. This is where I got to go. Um, but wow, having your immigration status like tied to it and and running that risk, like. That just seems 10 times harder so power to you for taking the leap and that was over 10 years ago 12 years ago now yeah that was, you that jumped was, into the world of entrepreneurship
1: it was it was 13 years ago in the fall when we started discussing it but i think i think to the point you know we use the term reckless and i think in some ways maybe it's a little bit of an unfair word because um you know in some ways like our our grown-up selves, right our our adulting selves perhaps you know what is more reckless to than, than not following your dream or mm-hmm. to living a life that is not true to yourself right and to not allowing yourself to pursue something that can let you become who you really are meant to be or and who you want to be right and just just in the fear of it not working out to me that's actually more reckless uh, and so it is it is perhaps um, being more risk-taking um or in fact even risk seeking um and i think that 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 is a, there's a healthy amount of that that is possible uh at the stages, and, and one one must capitalize on it when it's available to you yeah
0: and i think you hinted at this already about why you felt that calling to go into the mental health space but can you expand a bit more about what what it felt like in 2011 this just inner knowing that like this is what i'm supposed to do like i need to go and solve this problem
1: yeah yeah i had always you know wanted to do something that um made people's lives better like i knew that you know social impact was important to me i i had unfortunately had a um i had a bad biology teacher in eighth grade and so i had stopped taking biology after that and so sort of like the path in pakistan is once you make a decision you kind of like you've like left that track and so medicine had felt to me it it was kind of outside my reach for a long time it would require like Herculean efforts to go back to it Uh, not that it was impossible, but it was just sort of, you know, a bit of a stretch. So I'd always thought I would be in education. I'd always thought I would go do something, my calling would be in education. But then um, this opportunity arose in 2011, 2010 fall, when a friend from college who, you know, we both know, a dear friend, uh, Summer, he reached out to me. um, And, you know, his family had been in mental health and behavioral health uh, for a long time. His his dad's a psychiatrist, his mom's a neurologist, his uh, aunts are psychiatrists. And so they had, you know, been in and around mental health for a while. And I had been to their home. They would sort of adopted me uh, during college as, a you know, I would go there for Thanksgiving and fall breaks, summer. And so I got exposed to the business of mental health um, at their table. But what I didn't share with him at that moment, uh, even when he reached out to me and why I was so excited about it, because I experienced so much stigma growing up um, in Pakistan. And and even here, there was so much stigma at the time, uh, was that mental health was, you know, there was mental illness in my family right? My grandfather um, had been schizophrenic and had had bipolar, and he was undiagnosed for most of his life. And it was something that, you know, um, there was sort of like respect for elders in our culture, where it it would have broken the bounds of respect for his children to suggest that he had a mental illness um, and to pursue that path. And so he went untreated his whole life. And that had implications for his children and my mother. And I had seen what that looked like. My, um, there was mental illness on my father's side of the family. When, it, when, it, when the opportunity arose, it was kind of like obvious to me, like, OK, absolutely, these are great people to work with. And this is a problem that I you know have personally experienced and my family's experience. And I'm getting the opportunity. Why wouldn't I jump into it?
0: Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And I think the taboo, the stigma around mental health that was in our parents' generation, our grandparents' generation is slowly diminishing as I think our generation is being more honest about what we're going through, what what our loved ones are going through. And at the same time, it seems like the crisis is just rising. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious from your perspective, what is happening in the mental health, I guess the right term is in sector, like what's happening with the mental health of human beings on this world today?
1: Yeah, it's a, you bring up a really good point, right? We've made a lot of progress on some dimensions, including stigma, right? Uh, particularly in coastal cities, particularly in younger people. Um, we still have some ways to go, right? Even in this country uh, and, and, and definitely around the world, but even in this country, um, where we haven't been able to tackle stigma yet is around serious mental illness, right? So if somebody has mild to moderate depression or anxiety, kind of like your run of the mill, you know, everyday depression or anxiety, we're we're kind of comfortable understanding that. We're comfortable now saying someone needs a mental health day at work, right? People are comfortable raising that with their bosses um, or talking about that at work. But we're still not comfortable when someone has, you know, schizophrenia or bipolar or someone is suffering from addiction, right? Um, those things are still in many, many rooms today, still taboo. So we still have a long ways to go there. But to your, to your broader question around what's happening, you know, with the mental health industry in the US, um, I think it's helpful to kind of maybe just understand how the industry has been set up and evolved, and, and there's a lot of people who've written really um, are eloquently on the subject. Tom Insel, who's one of you know one of my friends and dear advisors to Grey Matter, he is uh, uh, he's got, got a book called um, uh, Healing, right, which has been a fantastic book for introduction to the space, and he, he talks about uh, you know what America's malady is, as far as mental health is concerned, and kind of how our systems evolve. But essentially, if you if you break it down, right, uh, prior to the '60s, and you know, we we would institutionalize people. If somebody was seen to have mental illness, we would lock them up. Um, and then in in the '60s, um, Kennedy passed was the Community Mental Health Act, and that enabled us to fund. Uh, and the vision was a really really bold vision. It was a really really progressive vision of saying. Hey, let's let's create space in community settings for treatment of mental illness because these people are from amongst us. They're from within us. They're not the other. Let's not otherize them, and let's find and fund pathways for treating them uh, within the community settings. Unfortunately, it was a really bold vision that you know didn't wasn't able to sustain because the funding for it dried up, and you know not all parts of it were fully. The execution wasn't fully thought through uh, in in all the ways that it needed to be, um, and so. As uh, we got to some of the austerity eras after, you know, the, the uh, '70s and '80s financial crises, and as governments got tighter, and the state and federal level, uh, state and county level, and some of the mental health issues were devolved to the state and county level, um, there was like a, this patchwork system that emerged, which has always been resource thin. And in many ways, uh, a lot of the care and mental health that's provided in this country until recently has been in the nonprofit setting, right? So we've again to borrow from Tom insell we we fund our mental health through bake sales in this country which is something we don't do for anything else we don't fund and if you have a knee surgery you don't expect that to be paid for by someone throwing a bake sale somewhere right like your insurance covers it um, but until recently until as late as 2006 we didn't have what is known as parity um, and insurance companies were not required to cover mental illness. Um, and then the first parity act was championed by Congressperson Patrick Kennedy, former Congressperson Patrick Kennedy, uh, you know, and, and and many others. That enabled us to have some basic coverage. And then in 2018, we had a second act that was passed um, under the Trump administration, which was um, uh, you know monumental in moving coverage for mental health. And then now in the Biden administration, we've seen a tremendous amount of progress, specifically for youth mental health and for funding programs. Uh, and and so we're seeing this sort of societal awareness and intentionality around saying, okay, you know, we cannot leave these people behind. We have to uh, fund this because, by the way, this is impacting us everywhere. Right? Like, this is showing up in our streets. This is showing up in our ERs. This is showing up in our prisons. Uh, and and really, we we've let down a li- really large portion of society by not having enough resources for this.
0: Things someone told me on my own journey. My own mental health healing journey was i opened up to a family friend and i had so much shame i was like you know there are some days where like i can't get out of bed in the morning and i can't like you know just muster up the energy everything feels so hard and she looked at me and she goes oh of course like it's completely normal for you to have you know some people call it a dark night of the soul if you're trying to realign with your life's purpose Mm -hmm. And that's so different than this mentality that we have of like, oh, you have depression, so you must go to a therapist immediately, as opposed to trying to just make sense of what it means to be human. And when it doesn't feel right, trying, like acknowledge it, like your body knows before your mind knows that like, hey, something is not right in terms of how I am operating, how I am living in this world. And which brings me to this question of, I know gray matter is very intentional in the language of mental health and well-being. So could you talk a little bit about the well-being aspect of it and how that relates to the society that we're building and the world that we're striving for? That's a great
1: question, yeah. I, 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 I'm I, really glad you touched on that because I think for a lot of people, um, mental health, which really just refers to mental illness or the sector around the treatment of mental illness more specifically. Um, has to do only with um, conditions like depression or anxiety or schizophrenia, um, and really, like if you think about, like if you like step back and if you if you zoom out and then look at society and like kind of our evolution as a species, right? Um, we've made a lot of progress on on many many dimensions. Um, we have in the last call it hundred years or so alone, um, you know, more than doubled our lifespan, right? Uh, maybe tripled in the last two hundred years. We have. Um, you know, dramatically tackle infant mortality and maternal mortality. We have created vaccines. We have, you know, solved many problems related to physical aging. And we're making more progress. You know, we, we're fighting cancers and, you know, we beat HIV and there's all these achievements. But we haven't, you know, we've been sort of, um, at least in the modern times, and I would describe that as sort of like the last couple of hundred years, we have shied away from, um, you know, questioning what's happening with our minds and with our with our more holistic experiences, right? Like what are, are the scientific era and, and this era of like science and technology has um, perhaps been averse to dabbling in anything that feels mystical or uh, you know, cannot be necessarily pointed to on a chart and and, and measured with a scale, right? So even today, like the way we measure depression is through a PHQ-9, which is like this like backwards looking scale on how you felt over the last two weeks, but it doesn't tell you about why, it doesn't tell you anything about like the cause, it doesn't tell you about anything like what's happening in your body or in your mind, it's just a measure self-reported scale for how you felt in the last two weeks, right? And so I think there's, there's definitely something here societally where we are missing the boat on understanding our complete selves and on and the good news is that you know more recently we have started turning in that direction and there is a lot of both scientific and holistic work happening in understanding our true human experience on the scientific side you know we're trying to map the brain we're trying to map the body-brain connection the gut biome connection we're 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 approaching this from multiple angles um and at gray matter we're very excited about what that means for the future what the potential these new platforms will open up for better innovations. But then at the same time, there's also really interesting work happening in almost returning back to practices that have been part of um, uh, human civilizations in all of history, right? Uh, Somatic practices, uh, healing practices, uh, plant medicine. uh, and, And there's sort of this like openness to revisit some of these things that have been left behind. Uh, which i think are going to be important so when in gray matter when we define wellness uh, as an investment firm we are talking about all of those things that are upstream of mental illness right like that like if tackled or prevented or solved would result in less mental illness as well as things that result in actualization of human potential things that would lead to people living lives that are richer because they have better relationships and they're more plugged into their communities and they are um, you know, uh, able to kind of solve some of those social determinants of healthcare through, um, you know, through, through commerce effectively, right? Through, through solutions that are innovative.
0: I recently took a, <clears throat> I recently took a training through the embody lab. It was organized by psychiatrists, psychologists, therapists, and they were very intentional. It was called an integrative somatic trauma training certification. And they were very intentional about expanding who has a role in healing beyond the traditional titles of a therapist or a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting that the book that you mentioned is called Healing, because I do think that healing is a much broader concept that each of us has a role to play in. Which brings me to the next question, kind of delving deeper on this upstream of the mental mental health um, spectrum. Could you share a story of one of the portfolio companies that you think is not just most promising in terms of solving mo- mental health, but like most revolutionary in terms of pushing beyond what our yeah. understanding is of mental health?
1: Yeah, uh, it's it's really timely because I'm actually just coming back from that company uh, this morning. Um, uh, they're called HomeAway Health and what they're building is, um, Think of it as an alternate destination to either the ER or to the inpatient setting um, for patients who are experiencing a mental health crisis. Right. So, in the moment that someone is having an episode, you know, whether it's like a, you know acute depression, whether it's you know an anxiety attack, whether it's you know uh, they've been on a having bouts of suicidal ideation. Although you know, we would not, we would probably not be ready to take on patients who are truly at risk of harm to themselves, but there are some people who, who kind of live with suicidal ideation for a while and they're not really going to act on it, but their lives are just stuck, right? Um, and so uh, today, a lot of these people end up in the ER because someone calls 911 on them or they call 911 on them themselves. Um, and, and the ER is, by the way, if they're lucky, right? In the worst case scenario, someone calls 911 on you and the cops show up and you, you are in jail, um, unfortunately in our system today. But let's say you end up in the ER once you've been held there for a few hours and and sort of deemed to not be at risk to yourself, today you're sent back home, right? And you're whether wherever you came from. And that setting might not be the right setting for you to be in. You may not be ready to be in that setting because you have not processed or dealt with or gone through that episode you're in, right? Um, that crisis episode that you're in. Or you might get referred to an inpatient setting where you're held for eight days and then discharged uh, because that's as long as insurance will allow you to stay there. Um, and by the way again great for some people but for many people the inpatient setting doesn't really do much uh you're restricted you're restrained your family has you know limited visiting hours you can't come in and out uh you can't be a part of your normal daily life you can't carry on with any of the things you're carrying on with before right uh, and so you're sort of isolated uh, uh in this sort of sterile not compassionate setting many times um so what we're building with home away and this is, I mean, what this team is building is amazing, is a model called crisis respite. Um, This model, I think, originally invented in Europe, I think Sweden, um, and then eventually uh, grew in in the UK before coming to New York uh, over a decade ago um, through some state funding and uh, state and federal funding. And what this model does is um, it really, the shape of it is it looks like a home. It looks like a community home. It's in a residential setting. It looks like a brownstone that you'd walk by on the Upper West Side, right? Um, And it's staffed by peers, certified peers, people who had lived experience with mental illness, and it has social workers inside. And when guests, we we don't call them patients, we call them guests. When a guest is referred to from an ER or from an inpatient setting, you know, we virtually screen them through a teleconsult, uh, and if they're appropriate fit for us would bring them in and once they're brought in, they will be welcomed, they'd have a cup of tea, they'd be given a room, uh, they'd be introduced to the other guests and then they would stay there anywhere from like, you know, seven to 14 to 28 days. You know, we developed like a plan with them on day one on what their goals are for themselves, what they're looking forward to going back to, what they hope to accomplish during that time through the programming that is available at the respite And this model, the reason it's, I bring this specific company up, even though we have a lot of very exciting companies is because this is not a treatments model, this is a supports model. And a lot of like what we've been trained to think about healthcare in the US is very treatment oriented. You know, I have X and so I get medicine Y, or I broke, you know, something here. And so I'm gonna get a procedure for it, right? And everything is about like finding like a immediate quick answer, right? Uh, oftentimes rooted in pharmacology which by the way can be very good for a lot of situations um but mental health is something where there are other issues to be tackled. like there are issues that you brought up of purpose of support of community of love and those things sometimes need time and space for the healing to happen and this place if you went to it if you visited one of these it's one of the calmest most compassionate settings you can be and you walk into you know respite center and you feel like you know you could just you could just be there for a while Um, even though it's a very humble and modest setting um you know it's uh it's the environment created by the peers and this welcoming support and love created by the community that that makes it pretty powerful so that's that's probably the business that i'm very excited about
0: that's so beautiful that's really beautiful a space just filled with compassion and care where people feel like humans mm-hmm.
1: exactly there's dignity
0: Yeah, that's the biggest problem with the mental health industry today is you're treated like a patient at best (laughs) Um, and being just rooting it in the human experience and remembering that like we are all human. And I think for me, one of the most humbling thoughts in my own lifetime has been, and I am just one stress cycle away from having a mental health crisis. And I think that we don't realize how delicate our brains are, how delicate our being is, and that this can happen to anyone.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Really well said.
0: So as we start to wrap up, Danish, I'd like to ask you, um, so at this point, you have experience with Genoa telepsychiatry, founding two, um, two funds related to mental health. From this point forward, if you were to just listen to an inner calling, a curiosity of something that you want to create in the world, what do you feel like you're being called to create these days?
1: Oh gosh, I think I think the work we have uh, embarked upon is is a long journey. So I think this this chapter that I'm on right now is going to be the chapter for uh, you know a very long time to come. Um, we just uh ra- you know, raise our first fund. And so we're probably going to raise our second fund and then third fund and 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 try to sort of expand the impact that we can have and expand the platform that we're building, right? These sort of the capabilities that we're developing that are our North Star is how 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 much can we help founders? And so we want to continue to get better at that. Um if I weren't doing this, right? It's hard for me to answer what I would do next, but if I weren't doing this, what I would probably be doing. Will be tied to my home country and we try to sort of finding some way to create economic impact and upliftment there um i think that you know as someone who has benefited from um, a lot of the gifts that that place has to offer i feel i feel like a duty to kind of go back and, and help uh, people there and there's some really talented people there and really you know population of is very young like i think some some crazy stat. like i think half the population is under the age of 25 or something right so uh lot of potential there and so i would probably do something related to that
0: wonderful is there anything that you'd like to share that we haven't touched on yet or like a nuance clarification anything that's that's coming up before we wrap up?
1: i think that um we have seen a tremendous amount of change in the world in the last you know few decades just even in our lifetimes right both um change that has been well-intentioned and driven by people and also change that has been unintended and has that uh, is a result is uh, is byproducts of, of other things right so um on the positive side you know mental health and how we've become aware and how we're focusing on it climate and how we have become aware and how we're focusing on it but then also some of the change caused by the internet and social media and how that amplifies noise and discord in society and how that lends voice to sometimes um you know, um, fringe ideas that that can become m- more mainstream, right? And so I think that there is a power in our voice, and I think I am becoming increasingly aware of how important it is for pe- all people, but especially young people, to participate in the civic process and to use their voices, because there, if they don't, there is a vacuum that very quickly gets filled by other voices. And there are ideas that creep up, that are not the ideas we want. And so it's not sometimes, you know, we can think that, oh, I don't have the capacity or the energy or the time. Why should I be out there putting my ideas or beliefs or what I want to see, the good I want to see in the world out there? And the reason to do it is because if if you don't do it, um, there will be other ideas that will take their place. And, and you may not love those ideas. And so it's really, really important for all of us to be uh, to be vocal about that.
0: Yeah, there's um, a saying that all healing comes down to reclaiming our voice, our choice, or our power. So knowing that we we have that ability to reclaim and to use our voice is so important for our own healing process and the world's healing process. I love
1: that. I love that. I love that. That's awesome. Thank you for having me, Sam.
0: Danish, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, to wrap up, I'd like to ask you, what is the legacy you'd like to leave behind?
1: Uh, um, I don't think in terms of like, you know, measuring it. I think that um, my grandfather, my nana, you know, he his goal always was that like any interaction he had with anyone. Uh, he wanted that to be interaction that was a positive one that left a mark on that person. and that it was about like what he could do for them in the moment, right? It could be something small, It't have to be big. And so I just hope that um, that I can continue to do that because you know it, it it definitely as 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 your as the demands of your time continue to grow, as the needs of your family and loved ones continue to grow, it can it can become sometimes hard to keep doing that. Um, and I, and I struggle with that sometimes. But I hope that I can continue to sort of uh, remind myself to to make every interaction that I have with someone positive.
0: Alrighty, friends. Thank you for listening to another episode of Lighter Impact. If this resonated with you or you're curious about what it would look like to work with a social impact coach, please do reach out to me through my website, pauseimpact.org. Till next time, wishing you little moments of lightness and impact. Have a wonderful week.